together from the Spacebird Media Studios. It's Roxanne and Ace Unlimited. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to March. We are Roxanne and Ace. So excited to be back and catch up on how the week is going. Always is you know, checking in with you is my favorite thing. So how you doing? Oh, I'm absolutely great. It is great to see you. When we are worried in life, who hasn't been worried? We're told, think positive thoughts. One thing we need to, which is great, but one thing we need to keep in mind that I think we forget, Ace, is that we have a loving Savior who is a shepherd. And what did the shepherd do? Keep sheep from getting out of line. (laughs) Keep us moving in the right direction. If we get off course, he scoops us up, and he's there through thick and thin. Every predator, every situation, everything that could hurt us. And how do we turn to our Savior? Well, we do that by having a personal and loving relationship with our Savior, who is our shepherd. And for some people, they know of Jesus. I mean, even the demons knew of Jesus. But they haven't taken that step to say, you know what, Lord? You're my friend. I'm going to bring everything to you. We're going to walk and talk together all day long, which is praying without ceasing. Not a one-way conversation, but a true relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this as I was kind of, you know, reading through this as devotion this week. You know, in the same vein that, like, I know you're new to TikTok and you've fallen in love with it, in the same vein that, you know, our algorithms pick up on the things that we watch or that we heart or comment on, and then it feeds us other content that falls in that fashion, right? What is it that we're doing that's feeding our anxiety or feeding the things that only distract us from God or distract us from His calling or His voice? And again, this is not like a bash on TikTok. This is using the way they understand us for us to realize how much we can connect or disconnect from God by just allowing the things that we're surrounding ourselves with to be a part of that. So, you know, we have to make sure, you know, it's the whole garbage in, garbage out mindset. But again, anxiety also comes from what we're feeding us and then allowing God to feed us more than any of it. Yes, feed on his word. <laughs> when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's just so strange. What on earth is that? But I it's, can't eat paper. Oh, well, it's, it's immersing yourself. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And there, I mean, you could take each part of this verse, Psalm 23, I, I only did the first couple of verses and break it down to an absolute intimacy and the beauty I shall not want. I mean, my eyes open. I want, you know, I, I, I <laughs> want an egg McMuffin. I want a right. Starbucks. I want, I want, I want when really that emptiness that we have inside is only filled by an intimate relationship with Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And I know for a lot of us, you know, we feed ourselves through our jobs, our careers, and we think, well, you know, I've got to feed my family. I have to do this. So that's where it is. We put ourselves into a job that pays well, but we don't realize that we're in a toxic environment. And Roxanne and I can speak firsthand when you see the signs of what it is that's going on around you, you realize this is not a healthy place for me. But at the same time, if you can be a part of the solution, wonderful. But again, doing the right thing. So how can we identify the toxic workplace? There's so many things, but one of them is when the boss has favorites. And I think this Mm. happens often when the boss hires people, the old regime is not a favorite. His hires or her hires tend to be the favorite. And then it's quite obvious to everyone except the boss that everyone knows it. Does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and I think too, you know, it's the whole, I read a book years ago, the question behind the question, which was you can't change people. You can only change how you respond to them. So, you know, when you're in that environment and, and we've been in that environment before that if you feel like you're not on, you know, the favorable side, then just still work with excellence. Don't, don't do anything that gives them a reason not to like the work you do, whether they ever really include you in that part of the click, so to speak, or not, it doesn't matter. You're still there to serve with excellence. That's what God calls us to, no matter what our job is. Give your absolute best. The boss congratulates him or herself, doesn't praise other people. The boss ignores you. That's a pretty steep warning sign. The boss only cares about whether you complete a deadline and doesn't give feedback on how you can grow. You know, I I had a boss they cared so much about me. I was in a car wreck and sent people to come get me and then stood at the top of a snow covered hill to make sure I was okay. Now, what happens mm-hmm. with that boss when you get back to the office? I'd, I'd have done anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's it feels like Ace and maybe it's just me and I'm from an age when you stayed with a company. Now the average length of time in a company is less than two years. It used to be loyalty from the employee to the manager and from the manager to the employee was very important. Now it feels to me like that's missing. Yeah. But let me ask you a question because I think for anyone who's listening right now and realizing they are working in a toxic environment, what did you learn about yourself by pressing through and just being the best Roxanne in those moments? I learned that I work unto the Lord. And, you know, there's there's a Martin Luther King quote about being the best street sweeper you can be if that's, in fact, what you do. I think I personalize and internalize too much, and it made me sick, the stress Mm -hmm. of it, when really I'm in control of me. I choose my boundaries. I was such a people pleaser. It was yes, 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 until there was overload. Does that make sense? And I didn't have self-care when people say that they're like, oh, that's that's an anti-religious thing to do. You should give, give, give. But when you give, 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 and there's nothing flowing in, Mm -hmm. you're going to be in trouble. And I just realized that I needed to be physically mentally and emotionally healthy and to be in an environment that I didn't feel valued, you know, that's not good in the long run. And, and, and 
I, I don't think the Lord wants us to be in that. Yeah. Well, and also, too, I think we've all probably been in a environment like this or you're currently in this environment and say you're sitting in a meeting and the boss makes everyone feel on edge or if you speak up or you're addressed and you speak up with an opinion of an idea and you know you're not on the favorites team, then you're speaking into something that's only going to be mocked or told you're wrong. And then you're you're that much more emotionally detaching from your job. And I'm not saying if you're in a toxic environment, go quit your job tomorrow. God will orchestrate when it's time for your exit. But you represent him through those moments. And for me, it's the agree to disagree. Say, okay, well, that you have your ideas. I have mine. If you don't like mine, you don't have to use them. And I, and eventually, here's what's great. God will take your grand ideas to, to someone who will use them. <laughs> and when that day comes, you can be like, freedom. Ooh, I believe that. That's so good stuff right there. And, and we're praying How for you, to, as you if you are in that. So, <laughs> How to make your marriage work. Some things definitely to avoid. And this is somehow geared toward us women. So I'll just take the hits now. But here we go. <laughs> Ways we make our marriage harder than it needs to be. And, and these are really legit. If you're a drama queen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and again, I, I don't, I don't want to like put myself in a place where I'm a target to go. You agree with everything on this list. I mean, drama in any marriage, regardless of whether it's coming from the wife or the husband, you know, I think we kind of touched on this on last week's, show about the things that we're bringing to the silly fights, you know, and, and are you constantly still in the silly fight mindset? You know, it, it you have to let go of the drama, you know, what's the too much drama for me, mama. We have to just let it go and love <laughs> unconditionally. It's, it's your sanctuary. You're bossy. Uh, Ace, you've never been bossy before. Have you? Uh, probably, but uh, I don't know. I probably should ask my wife before I actually, <laughs> I mean, I am on my third marriage, so maybe I was bossy before her <laughs> and that's why that didn't work out. So, you know, it's poster child for do this, don't do that. Yeah. What I've learned is my way may not be the best way and I may think it's the best way, but you know, I took apart part of the refrigerator today and realized that when I was putting it back, things were upside down. So thank goodness for men who can figure it out nagging and yep. na, 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 na. it's like oh the bible has a lot to say about nagging you know why nag why just get all worked up and then use your mouth not to glorify the king and not to respect your partner yeah well and again the best relationships for those that are in rooted in trust. You know, I tell my wife, I say, I love you, but it's, I love you because I know that I can trust you. I can give you all of the things that you require of me and vice versa. But if the trust is ever bent or, you know, compromised, not necessarily, I mean, when it's broken, then that's a whole nother segment. We don't have time for that right now. That's another time. But when trust is bent or flexed in any way, it causes us to question our love for each other question whether our, we're committed and loyal and we want to stick through it, but it's the two of you against the world, not the two of you against each other, you know? So again, 
I could get on my soapbox about this, but like, you know, no fights in the bedroom, you know, have a place that is your discussion or arguing, you know, place that's the front yard where the neighbors can hear you or it's in the car where no <laughs> one can hear you, whatever that is, find the place that doesn't mess with those places where intimacy should be a breeding ground so that it allows you to talk through if you are in some of these areas it's like, okay, I, I, I feel this gets a little dramatic when this happens, or I feel this way when you say these things and just talk it through. Because when you go through conflict, like the whole idea I know in our house is, okay, how can we avoid this conflict next time? So we talk it out at exhaustion so that we don't revisit those fights over and over again. And learn how, how to apologize. So Ace, I am sorry. Mm. I'm just, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're not married, but thank you. I, I'm sorry for anything that I've said or done at any point. Cause uh, again, I'm a verbal processor. Cause I could be processing something and go, Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. So that there happens. is a new trend that I'm not very good at. And so I just, I want to try to learn how to be better at hanging out or chilling. Now that is the new trend in culture. Yep. There's a book about it. Uh, anybody who's younger than me probably knows how to chill out and hang out. I just remember my daughter saying, we're just going to hang out. I'm like, well, is that a date? Are you going right. to eat it? Uh, no, mom. I'm like, huh? I, it, <laughs> there's a part of me that still thinks we're too hyper scheduled, but to mm. me, I, I just chilling out is defined as reclaiming time to just visit with each other. Yeah. Well, and I think like, I've forgotten I've, how to I've, do that. Sure. And, and I think there are those people that are easier to chill with than others. You know, sometimes <laughs> you need food as a definitive start and stop time because that relationship might not be as fluent as you would like it or as relaxed as you would like it. And then there are those where you don't need food or an event you're just like, I just come over and hang out, you know, and, and whatever happens, happens. Sometimes you play apples to apples, or sometimes you crack open a bottle of wine or whatever. But, but, it's, that, but it's, if you're playing a game, it's no longer chilling, chilling. No, seriously. If you're hanging out, you're not supposed to be doing anything. Hmm. It's according to Sheila Liming, the author of Hanging Out, Unstructured right. Time. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try as somebody who, when I'm on the phone, I feel like I need to be folding the laundry at the same time. Sure. I just know there's a learning curve for me on that. But I will also say your husband enables you a little bit because he plans your date days from wall to wall. So there yeah. is no chill time. So I think you're conditioned. You get a little bit of grace. At least I give you some because <laughs> you guys go like eight, eight places in one date. And I'm like, I can barely <laughs> afford one. It's like, but, you know, yeah. And sometimes there's an outfit and a wig change and people are like, was this one day or several? I'm like, no, we started at seven in the morning and went till typically 12 at night. Mm -hmm. But I, but we enjoy it. But you're right. So no wonder I can't chill. <laughs> it's your husband's fault. See, you're adding drama. It all connects. It's all there. <laughs> OK. Other things that we don't understand is new age terminology. This is fascinating to me. Here we go. 
You're currently single and cobwebbing in the aftermath of your previous failed relationship. The attractive person you thought had Riz is starting to exhibit beige flags. And so you turn your ongoing situationship or attention, but deep down you hope to meet someone worth soft launching. Yeah. I didn't know the term beige flag. Like I, we all know red flags, green flags, I, beige. This is the first time I've heard of a beige flag. Describe that for me. It's it's really, really bizarre. Uh, the beige flag, you know, red flag is woo, but the beige flag is sort of, hmm, I got to check in my spirit on that. Not really sure. Okay. Now, why we would need the term beige flag, I don't know. There's bread crumbing. When somebody consistently checks in as a romantic interest, they're lo- like leaving you a little bread breadcrumb. They say, well, maybe we, this has happened to me. Well, maybe we ought to go out sometime. And then the out sometime doesn't happen. So they're yeah. breadcrumbing. Now, the thing that I didn't realize, and this has happened to me before, and now that there's a term, I'm a little offended. I've been cookie jarred. Yes. And so, so that means that I was someone's backup if the relationship they were in didn't work out and I'm, and and, and, and again, I had a beige flag. I didn't know it was beige at the time, but the beige flag was waving and I should have, I should have backed out then. Cause again, like we've said, the right person at the wrong time is still the wrong person. So that's your beige flag for relationships, but to be cookie jarred that, Oh, I mean, don't open someone's heart. If you don't have a, if you don't take the time to say, I'm going to see this all the way through. So cuffing is when somebody's trying to own you. They're like, you're mine and you're not going to have friends and you're just talking to me. You're handcuffed cuffing cobwebbing is the act of self love. Like I'm hanging on to the sweater that he gave me. I'm Mm. wearing his necklace. So I need to purge those things. So that's um, by cobwebbing the things that were hanging on to me as a web I'm letting go of. I'm learning so much from this. No, it's good. And, And hopefully if you find yourself in any of these also put the mirror back on yourself and go, am I doing these to anyone? Cause as, as, as much as I can be mad about being cookie jarred, I probably have cookie <laughs> jarred a few people and you know, and it's, it's not in a Sesame street kind of way. So if somebody says Riz, I would think, is that bad? No, it means they have charisma. It's a Gen Z term. <laughs> it's popular on TikTok. I haven't heard it, but there's always a first for everything. Then there's soft launching. And this is when you're really not ready to show a full face photo of the two of you in love, but you want to like allude to the fact that someone's in your life. So I don't know, are they taking a picture of a shoulder and saying, I'll let you see later if I still like him, but here's his, here's his shoulder, a soft launch. Well, and you know this about me, Tawny and I, we waited specifically six months to the date of our first date before we told anybody anything. Like we weren't having, I mean, I think I shared it with about her with you and no one else until we made it social media, you know, public, but we did that on purpose because we wanted, I mean, again, third marriage, you want to do it right this time. And at your advice, you know, to go through the four seasons together was probably the smartest thing we were told from the beginning, because when we came back around to that fifth season, we just applied the things we learned from season one and it worked. And I was like, Write a book, Roxanne. This is genius. 
<laughs> I needed this when I was a teenager. But it's so right. I mean, if if we want our relationships to thrive and to be healthy and good and godly, we have to do those seasons together. Love bombing is lavishing a romantic partner with grand gestures, constant contact, expensive gifts. I had that happen to me once, and I'll admit, I was like, I had a guy say, I'll get you that house, and you can fill it with anything you want. Mm -hmm. But it was still early on. So I was like, and it was a monstrous, I mean, it was huge. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. And then a part of me was like, what? You know, is that me? No, I'm, well, I mean, I've never had someone offer me a house, so I, I don't quite know what that feels like. <laughs> so, brava for being a woman. But I will say that the fact that you had your beige flag of, I mean, he's, you know, he's trying to cookie jar you, cuff you, and, you know, all the other, all the things were in that one person. That was beige turned to red like that, you know, snapping it. I all right, have and, to and ask one you. More th- One more thing about culture. We're learning a lot tonight. Gen Z, by the way, does not want to drive. Those born between 1996 and 2012 are waiting until their 20s to get their license because they want to be Ubered everywhere so they don't have to look up, so they can text the whole time, so they don't have to be bothered with traffic, or they're getting an e-bike, which I have, by the way. They're super cool, but still. Yeah. It's kind of hard to e-bike in the rain to work. You know what I mean? Um, Oh, sure. Well, and when my daughters, I mean, they're adults now, but when they turned 16 and got their license, I was amazed how they were chauffeuring their friends. And I was like, why are they not getting their license? They're the same. They're like, oh, they don't want to drive. I was like, what? Like, that was freedom to me. Like, I went from the BMX bike to my little Toyota Corolla. Like, that was, you know, and still, you know, the open road, man, that was the way to go. So I, I cannot buy into why that is a Gen Z thing, but that's why I didn't, I'm not that generation. I, I, I guess I'm now that guy that's like, I don't understand kids these days because <laughs> I don't understand kids these days when it comes to things like that. Well, to me, I mean, you remember getting your learner's permit, how excited you were. And then the day you turned 16, you had to have your license. You were holding it up. You you might have a car. You might be saving for a car and what a big deal it was. So it kind of blows my mind that they don't want a license. Yeah, I don't get it. We're Roxanne and Ace Unlimited and super excited to welcome our brand new partners, but longtime friends, Birmingham Mortgage, uh, to the show because Roxanne and I are both in our homes right now because of Birmingham Mortgage. They uh, can super serve multiple states uh, for so many reasons. And I think the heart of who Turin is is why I think I loved that our mortgage went through Birmingham Mortgage. Turin and Andrea Newell are dear friends, super smart people. They have built a major business out of super serving you. You know, you mentioned some multiple marriages. You know, second time around for us was super sticky financially, and it was very complicated. And, you know, I got stressed for about two seconds because Turin is so brilliant at navigating things. And you think, well, right now I'm just going to sit on what I've got. Well, people are still moving. They still need mortgages. This is a very smart, conscientious, godly, wonderful man who makes it happen. No excuses. So I don't care where you are with things. You want to improve your finances. You want to find out what's really happening in the market. You want to make a purchase. You want to sell. You want to really 
find out what is happening in the mortgage business and get the best possible plan for you. Birmingham Mortgage Group, only way to go. And you and I know that from experience, Ace. Yeah, pretty easy to find them. Just go to behammortgage.com. That's behammortgage.com or call them 205-259-1656. And of course, uh, when you call them, make sure you mention Roxanne and Ace Unlimited. Super excited about this hero and world changer that is joining us now. He is the founder of a global humanitarian organization that's in eight countries, has 200 employees. He's the author of Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Saving Lives. We've got a lot to talk about. He's been in ministry for over 40 years. We welcome to the show Ron Post. Hi there. Thank you. Good to be with you. So, Ron, start us back because this is just not, you know, someone who grew up in a Christian home and bam, you're serving God and everything's glorious with bluebirds and angels. You've been through (laughs) some pretty dark times. Tell us about younger Ron, like some of the things that happened that got you to where you are. Well, my childhood was a tough one. Um, My father and mother married. in 1930, right at the beginning of the Great Depression. And they they went on to have a total of eight children. And it, it was a tough time for my dad. I didn't realize it as a child, but it was a tough time. And unfortunately, his disappointment was taken out on some of us children. And it was pretty rough uh, during my growing up. Until one day, uh, my mom said, that's enough. And if you don't stop, I'm going to take the kids and leave. I didn't learn this until years later. And my dad, apparently, it just nailed him. And he decided, I need to turn my life around. And he did. And I thank God for fathers like mine who, who can turn their life around. But then... Something else happened Uh, between the ages of eight and 10. I was sexually abused. Um, And I was warned not to tell anyone. And I didn't for 70 some years. It changed my life. Um, I became a very quiet child. Uh, People today wouldn't believe that, but I was a very quiet child. And uh, I, I just didn't uh, seem to fit in. And later, uh, as I got a little older, I I tried to act out things. So I became the class clown, if you would, and wanted attention. And um, it just led me to dislike school and all that goes with it. And uh, that um, that was a tough time. When in the Air Force, um, I, uh, Spent six years in the Air Force, loved it because I I kind of found myself somewhat in there. And that's where I met my beautiful bride, Jean, in 1959. And uh, we, uh, we got married. Uh, <laughs> I started dating her, and two weeks later, I asked her to marry me. Three All months right. later, we were married. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Uh, so, but I did not tell my wife 
uh, about my childhood uh, problems. Uh, we'd been married about 60 years before I, I told her and I told my family. So uh, it was a long time. So now, what was that, that shows typically, I'm sorry, Ace. No, you go, you go ahead. <laughs> research shows typically people wait until they're in their fifties to share things like this that happened to them in their childhood. Yes. Why did you wait so long? And why do you think that's typical that people wait until later in life? Well, of course I went through years of shame. Uh, and so I hid it. I buried it down deep and I tried to uh, live a life not too successfully. Um, and uh, I, we have since found out that the average time for people to tell someone is about 52 years. That's uh, studies that have been made. Mine was longer. And uh, it's just, um, it, 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 you, you get to the point also where you just don't want to tell anybody and you don't want your family to know. And, uh, but in 1965, through almost a divorce uh, at that time, I started going to a church in Oxnard, California. And at that church, one Sunday evening, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And my life began to change. And he changed me from the inside out. But it took another seven years and a very special incident that happened at church where the pastor was preaching all week on, on the hidden things we have in our life that hold us back from being everything God wants us to be. And one, it culminated in a meeting one night where he lined, he, he put uh, chairs in a big circle with one chair in the middle. And he said, if you would like to get it out and just be free of everything, come and sit in this chair and we'll pray for you. I was sitting on the edge of my chair knowing I had to do something. And finally I got up and I went to that chair. And they, they laid their hands on me and prayed for me. And a night or two later, I got on my knees and I forgave, I asked God to forgive those who hurt me. And when I got up, it was like, it was like it was a total release. And my life changed after that dramatically because I began to love these people. Now, why didn't I tell my family at that time? Because I think at that time I thought, you know, I don't want them to dislike the ones who, who did this to me. And so I held it back until about three or four years ago. And finally, it's like God said, Ron, you need to tell your family so that they can see you, what you were like before, but what you are now. And so I did that. I brought my family together and I told them what happened and that I had forgiven these folks. And um, that was, uh, that was tremendous because I don't believe God could have, allowed me to do the things that I've been able to do had I not forgiven those who harmed me. And, and can I say that 
if, if you've had childhood, if anyone's had childhood uh, abuse, physically or sexually, uh, you can recover from it and you can go on and having a life of meaning and purpose through forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Uh, I, I tell people, don't let the ones that hurt you hold you back from being everything that God wants you to be. And so in my book, Unchained, I try to share that. And uh, hopefully uh, people will read it who have been abused, and there's millions. And perhaps they can find that forgiveness and, and be everything that God wants them to be. Well, and where most people would use their past as an excuse not to survive or thrive or want to go on, you found your purpose. Tell us about Unchained and how you got into that frame of mind. When did God reach you and say, this is what I've orchestrated you for? I had been a businessman. I developed a business background. And uh, one night in 1979, my wife and I were watching the news account of what we refer to now as the killing fields of Cambodia, where so many people were dying. And we saw them picking up a body out of a rice field that appeared to be a, a teenage girl, maybe, that had starved to death. And I looked over on the couch, and there was my teenage daughter laying on the couch. And suddenly I was impacted with the, with the fact that that could have been my daughter. I could have been born there. Um, and so as I was pondering that, it was like someone literally almost gave me a written plan. And mm. that plan was, you are to raise up a medical team and go take them to the killing fields and help those people. And you're to do it in two weeks. And I, at first I thought, no, 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 no. Can't do that. Yeah. Can't do that. But, but finally, I had to blurt it out to my wife and I told her and she said, yes, yes, we've got to help those people. And so that began a miraculous journey of God opening doors so wide and allowing me to go through that we were able to raise up a team of 27 medical people, including the funding needed for it. And we had them there in two weeks helping those people. That was the beginning of Medical Teams International. Mind-boggling what you've been able to accomplish. How important is it to each and every person who has breath, knows the Lord, loves the Lord, to reach out and to serve others in need? Well, you know, Ephesians 2.10 is one of my favorite verses and says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. So, the, and the scriptures are full. Uh, the Lord said to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two most important things that Jesus told us. And so we, we can find meaning and purpose by serving others. We all have an assignment, and God wants us to be out there completing our assignment like the Apostle Paul did 
he worked all the way to the end. He ran the race and he finished it strong. And we're to finish strong. Uh, God wants us out there serving people. And when we are, we do find that meaning and purpose that God intended for us. And it, uh, it changes your life when you start doing that. So, Ron, as someone who's been on missions trips and anyone who's served in ministry, you know, we get into it with the idea like a doctor of I'm here to help people. And then you realize once you get there, God had something to say to you or to bless you in some way. Is there a story of in these moments of living out this purpose that that occasion happened for you? Oh, so many times, so many times. Um, I mean, one that always stands out to me. We had responded to the great famine in Ethiopia, 1985, where uh, somewhere around 100 to 200,000 people starved to death. And we took our medical teams there to help them. And one of the, one of the refugee camps we were working in, uh, our team was working in the, what they call intensive feeding center, where mothers could bring their babies, their malnourished babies, to get intensive feeding, but we could only admit 200 cases a day. And each day there'd be morning, there'd be like 1400 or so women with their babies lined up, hoping to be admitted to the feeding center. And our nurses would go down through the line and they, they, they would be feeling between the fingers of the babies for fat content to select then the worst 200 cases. And when they did that, they would then go off in a corner and cry because they knew that many of those babies that they didn't select would be dead by the next day. It was tragic. It was tragic like I'd never seen. And as I watched that unfolding one morning, in the distance, there were two elderly ladies that approached us. And for some reason, they came towards me, even though there were a lot of people around. And one of them stood right in front of me. And I, could, I noticed they both were carrying a little black buckets. Not hard to figure out, they were after grain. And so one of them stood in front of me and within less than a minute, she started trembling and she fell to the ground. Our nurses tried to help, but she died right there on the ground. And her arm was outstretched and just an inch or two from her hand was the black bucket, the empty black bucket. Someone took a picture of it later gave me, I have that picture. It will always be up here mm -hmm. on that black bucket because what God was trying to tell me is, Ron, go back home and tell the people there are millions of people around the world and here in our own country that need their buckets filled. They're empty. They need help. Different kinds of help. But there's black buckets empty all over our world. And go and tell the people that we are called to fill those buckets. And when we fill them and we have God's promise, theirs will begin to fill and ours will never go empty. It'll never empty. God promised that. And that's just one of many stories that God spoke to my heart 
that changed my life forever. You are a full bucket. You know that? Overflowing mm -hmm. with God's love, helping others around the world. I'm, I'm so touched by this story. I'll, I'll never forget it. And I, I can't thank you enough, Ace and I, for taking the time to talk to us because I, I know for me, I still have much to learn. When I look at you and you're still giving after all these years, after all your hurt, I think it's really powerful. And it's a great thing for us to hear around the world. It's time to stand up and give and see God work miracles and forgive those who have harmed us. How can people get a copy of Unchained? Well, it's now available on Amazon, uh, or they can go to ronpost.org, uh, where they can order the book. And there's a bonus for going to ronpost.org. We post two new, new devotions that I write every week. And I, I think they're devotions that will encourage people in their walk with the Lord. And they're there. Uh, that they can see them at ronpost.org. And uh, I, I hope they buy it. Uh, I am giving away almost all the, the proceeds from this book. I want people, I want as many books out there to be, to be bought as possible because I really honestly believe it will help change lives. So good. And we'll also post it at roxanneace.com. So uh, for anyone that's uh, listening, you can find it there too. So Ron, thanks so much for challenging us to be unlimited today. And uh, we look forward to having you back sometime. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. God bless you. Thank you. We're Roxanne and Ace Unlimited. We hope that you're sipping your Roxanne blend of coffee purchased from mybrotherscup.com. It's a wonderful gift because almost all of the proceeds go directly to mission teams around the world. Mm -hmm. And since our guest today is all about that, it's kind of an exciting tie-in. It's a way that you can truly spread the gospel of Jesus and enjoy coffee at the same time. Yeah, and we want to also congratulate Marie Harden. She was our uh, winner for not only the Roxanne blend of coffee, but she gets the official Roxanne and Ace Unlimited coffee mug so she can enjoy the two-for-one all-in-one. So uh, make sure you check us out online, roxanneandace.com, uh, to get the coffee, get your mug, and find out about future giveaways. Uh, you can also find out more about Ron's book and more about Birmingham Mortgage as uh, you get ready to refi or get that dream home and make it happen. So have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll see you next Friday. As always, I love you. I love you too, honey. You've been listening to Roxanne and Ace Unlimited. To make sure you don't miss future shows, you can subscribe anywhere you like to podcast and catch up on anything you've missed. Find out more at RoxanneandAce.com. Roxanne and Ace Unlimited is a production of Spacebird Media.